BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, and welcome to the Josh Marshall Podcast. This is David Tainter. Well, we made it. We are at the end of a grueling two-week stretch of convention coverage, a lot of late nights among the TPM staff, and, and for readers too, I suppose, who are following along. Uh, I'm joined by Kate Riga and Summer Concepcion. How is everyone holding up? Glad it's over. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I can't believe it's over, but it's also like we're all very tired. Yep, yep, yep. So last night was obviously Trump's uh, headlining speech delivered from the White House South Lawn. He had the uh, the White House South Lawn festooned with Trump signs as if it were kind of one of his own real estate projects. A crowd of about 1,500 people were packed together. There was a handful of masks you could see, um, but not that many. I think among Trump's cabinet of old white guys who were in the front row, um, Alex Azar, the HHS secretary, seemed to be the only person with the mask on. Um, but there were a few, few sprinkled out throughout the crowd as well. The speech itself was relatively kind of straightforward. Most of Trump's greatest hits, Biden sucks, uh, you know, the economy is great, violence in democratic cities needs to end, just kind of a rehash of a lot of his common talking points. Kate, let's start with you. Um, what what over the last night, I guess, jumped out to you? Was there anything that left a lasting impression on you? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was pretty business as usual, as has been for this convention, kind of the painting liberal cities as hellscapes type thing and continuing the fantasy of, you know, violence will befall the country if Trump is not president and hoping everyone forgets that he is right now. But the the most glaring thing about the last night was his use of, you know, the White House and then the Washington Monument as his backdrops. Um, and there was a point in the speech where he, you know, said, we're here and they're not, you know, just kind of very gleefully trampling over this before really respected separation between the presidency and a political campaign. Um, and then I thought the other side of that that we saw last night is that, you know, people are very well versed in protesting the White House. There, you know, there are protests there every day, even if they're, you know, small ones. So last night there were a lot of people uh, downtown DC, just a few blocks from where I live, um, you know, and they had various kind of co-centric um, protests going on. And one of them was all about making noise to drown out Trump's speech. Um, so you had a call to bring, you know, foghorns and trumpets and stuff. And you could actually hear that intruding onto the broadcast, um, you know, on C-SPAN and things like that. Um, and then it concluded with some people who had been attending the speech getting, um, you know, to hear to hear Rand Paul tell it attacked, to hear other people tell it kind of just confronted um, by these crowds. And then all this kind of last week feels like it is built here in DC into this big protest that had been planned for months, you know, but right now we have thousands of people streaming into the city for a march on Washington. So it does feel like a, pr a pretty jarring juxtaposition of 
kind of this Trump's irreverence about respecting his role as the president and not mixing it with being candidate. And then also these protests, which have exploded all over the country for various reasons, kind of sent, coming into a focal point now in D.C., which he so you know gleefully used as his as his backdrop. Um, so I think that's the kind of the the imagery that stayed with me most last night. Yeah. Summer, what did you make of the, I don't know, the crowd packed into the, the White House grounds to see Trump's speech last night? We haven't seen that many people kind of packed together, I guess, really since Trump's rally in Tulsa, I guess. Yeah. Um, good question, because I found it very jarring. I, I felt, or at least I thought throughout the RNC that it's just when you compare it to remarks from last week's DNC, it's there's an alternate reality that's being conveyed here. It's like Trump's America <laughs> or the way that he portrays America. It's just so wildly different from the way that Democrats were talking about it last week. And just seeing that um, the amount of people, the 1,500 or so people on the front lawn of the White House. I mean, Trump is really hammering into his hope that someday the virus disappears. I mean, it's like it's like he's just ghosting on the virus. It's just very, it's very alarming. But am I surprised? No. I mean, this is pretty much I feel like Trump has over the past couple months, especially since the Tulsa rally debacle, um, has really just tried to co-opt <laughs> as many events as possible into, I mean, he can't hold campaign rally. I, or at least not call them campaign rallies, but this is the closest he's going to get. Okay, I'm glad you brought up that that quote. The fact is, we are here and they're not. It really did seem to kind of sum up the whole Trump presidency in a way, right? This was a convention that had no official agenda other than supporting Trump's second term, basically. Um, and it really just kind of solidified the, the sort of the own the libs approach to everything he does. It's not to, I don't know, make life better for Americans or to fix complicated problems or address racial injustice or anything like that. It's just like we won and you didn't. And four years later, that's kind of all all that's left. Right. And, you know, it's hard to gauge the effectiveness of conventions, first of all, before you've got any data on them. And second of all, just from our vantage point as, you know, political journalists, it's hard to have the necessary distance to know how much, you know, your quote unquote normal person even kind of watches or keys into what's going on. But if you just think about it on its, you know, base level, why are you holding this convention? You know, what are you holding, hoping to accomplish? And I think for Biden and Harris, it was about reintroducing Biden and maybe introducing Harris to the American people. It was his chance to kind of make his case as a person. And I think we saw that the through line of the DNC was Joe Biden's empathy. You know, that was its thesis that underlied everything else. Um, And then you would think, you know, we know Trump. We spent the past four years getting to experience his personality every day. So then you would think the point of their convention would be to show Americans that they have got a plan or that they deserve another four years, especially while we're kind of sitting on this smoldering heap of, you know, economic devastation, pandemic, unrest, etc. And that is not at all, you know, what they delivered. And that's either because just because they don't have a plan or because they think it behooves them more to dig in, you know, to show 
to have Trump, you know, make fun of Biden's touchiness from inside of the White House and have, you know, Rudy Giuliani rolling around in the aisles. Like, they clearly think that that is what they need to do to win, to fire up their base, to just, you know, have the McCloskey speak and just red meat, red meat, red meat for people who already like Trump. And so that, you know, to some degree, we've only got, what, 60 days until the election, something like that. So in as far as conventions help anything, you know, that's, that's where we are. That's what they did. And the DNC, I think, can claim success because Biden's personal favorables have gone up pretty significantly since the convention, which shows they did a good job of uh, introducing people to him, showing that, you know, he's likable and he likes ice cream and his grandkids like him and really kind of hammering home that. And now for Trump, I think what remains to be seen is if he can effectively, you know, hijack the protests and make make his face believe what he's been peddling for the past four days, which is that none of this is his fault. But for some reason, if we give him another four years, he will effectively be able to deal with it. Um, and I think that's kind of the posture we're at now. You know, we've been waiting for a, for the mystical pivot for four years from Trump, but there was no even, you know, attempt to pivot during this convention. Right, right. All right. Well, maybe we can end just by going around and talking about maybe the the moment or the scene that jumped out most to us over this week of coverage, either a speech or a kind of video montage or, I don't know, political stunt. Um, Summer, do you want to kick us off? Sure. I mean, this is in line with, you know, Trump's and really Republicans' whole gambit that Democrats are going to threaten our safety, threaten your lifestyle if Biden wins and all that. So I think one of the most laughable lines of last night, I would say, goes to Mitch McConnell when he was lying about Democrats want to tell you how many hamburgers um, you can eat. I mean, it's just like one of the most absurd lines of the night. So that's something that obviously it's a lie. But I mean, it did it did raise brows and capture attention. So maybe that was just the point of it. Right. I guess that was a nod to the Green New Deal. Right. And like mm-hmm. methane emissions from cows and stuff like that. Um, one of the kind of favorite bugaboos of the of the GOP. Kate, what about you? It doesn't have to be just from last night, but anything from over the week that um, yeah. you know, has stuck with you. One of the funniest points that kept being returned to to me was speaker's insistence that Trump does care about people um like you had you know Kaylee McEnany however you say your last name you had her give her whole very personal very emotional story of getting a mastectomy and the only way that Trump intersected in that story was that he called her once after she had the procedure and like that was the moment where we're supposed to be like god you know what what a guy it's like well yeah that kind of seems bare minimum to me you know and you had Laura Trump's entire speech was about, I too thought the Trumps were assholes until I married into their family. So it's just funny because that was kind of the whole, like I mentioned, that was the whole point of the DNC was to show people who Joe Biden is. And they did it kind of through packages of, um, you know, the the little boy with a stutter who talked about how Biden had helped him. Um, and the, the woman who operated the elevator at the New York Times, you know, through more, you know, subtle things like that. And then for the RNC, it was just like every speaker was contractually obligated to toss in a line about how, no, Trump does care. He really does. And then move on to whatever their speech was about. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, the moment that stuck out to me from the week was obviously Kimberly Guilfoyle's speech, which will 
go down in history as one of the most kind of amazing and loud, loudest <laughs> moments of uh, a political convention. It's I mean, hard it's to a meme that. now. It's a meme now. Yeah, it seems like <laughs> after that, every other speaker to follow kind of got the memo like, hey, don't... <laughs> Don't get gift or don't, you know, don't, don't turn into a kind of... Don't shriek at an empty room. Yeah, I saw her already, um, the, the arms outstretched, wide smile <laughs> thing um, put on Melania's green screen dress last <laughs> night. So things have really come full circle. Exactly, yeah. And I guess beyond that, it really was, you know, other than last night, the White House being the backdrop for Trump's acceptance speech, it was really, I guess it was Tuesday night's use of the White House for a naturalization ceremony for newly sworn in Americans and the pardon ceremony. Just, you know, these overt uses of the the White House for Trump's campaign ends. I think that stays with me. And it's kind of when you look at it as a from front to back, just this unprecedented, weird and just disturbing kind of scene, basically. But um, any final thoughts before we sign off for the week and try to get some sleep this weekend and I don't know I mean there's I heard on another podcast this morning there's 10 weekends left until the election so I don't know on the one hand that doesn't sound like much at all and on the other it's I don't know a lot can happen still especially in quarantine times when every day is akin to like two weeks so right that's the thing we've been stuck in quarantine for what almost six months now (laughs) so 10 weeks it's going to be here. It's going it, to, that feels like tomorrow, honestly, yeah, to me. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, thank you for listening to our convention recap podcast. We've had fun bringing them to you and we hope you've enjoyed them too. Let us know what you think. You can write in at talk at talking points memo. Let us know um, if you'd like more of these types of things or if you've had enough. Um, either way, it's fine with us. Uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew. You can get 20% off your first order at gradyscoldbrew.com using the promo code TPM. Kate and Summer, I appreciate you hanging in there for the last couple of weeks and, and joining me over these podcasts. I hope you can catch up on some sleep this weekend. Yeah, you too, David. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye. Bye. All right, take care.